everyone. So good to see you. Thanks for coming out tonight. Again, it's always a terrifying honor to be here in front of you. Always terrifying. But we're on the home stretch of the table series. Who's enjoyed the table series? And can we give a shout out to Bree, who's been doing the meals and her team? Oh my goodness. The minute I got out of the car, I could smell this wonderful smell coming from this church. And I'm like, oh, we're so grateful for Bree. Now, if you're just joining us um, today during the series, we've been following Jesus through the Gospel of Luke as he encounters and interacts with people over a table. Now, in Luke's Gospel, and, we, and I said this a couple weeks ago, that Jesus was either coming from a meal, at a meal, or going to a meal in the Gospel of Luke because Jesus loved to eat. And at these table encounters, we see Jesus totally flip the script on table etiquette as he eats and interacts with sinners, outcasts, and the broken. And these meals with Jesus were really not about the food, the exception being probably the Last Supper. But these meals with Jesus represent something bigger, something way bigger. They represent a new world, a new kingdom, a new outlook. It was a strategic tool that Jesus used to enact his mission. Now, it was his mission of grace and mercy, compassion and healing and forgiveness. It was his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So tonight, we are once again headed to a dinner party. And at this dinner party, we are going to see two types of broken people. One who is broken and transformed by the forgiveness and the grace of God. And the other who doesn't get just how broken they really are. Now, Luke, the gospel writer, was a literary artist. He's going to paint a stunning picture for us tonight as he tells us a story about Jesus and what he's like. And my prayer is tonight that all of us, that we would see and be moved by the beauties of it because it's breathtaking. It's breathtaking. And before we pray, I just want to say, it's always amazing to me, and I'm emotional about it. Um, it's always amazing to me when a scripture comes my way again. I've preached on this before. And I'm like, oh yeah, I kind of got this. And I was, I was preparing and getting out my notes from the last time. It just really sunk deep. And I feel like God said to me, that's the point. <laughs> We're going deeper. I hope that's that way for you as well. So, Lord, you are truly breathtaking. You're beautiful. And I love where two or more are gathered. It says in your word that you are in the midst. And I love how the rabbis of old would say whenever two were gathered and the word of God was open between them, the Shekinah glory would settle between them. And so God... Be glorified in our midst. And as someone prayed over me earlier, God, I pray that I would decrease and you would increase. Be present in our midst. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Okay, so Luke sets the stage for us in chapter 7. And instead of reading the passages as a whole, we're just going to read them bit by bit as we talk about them a bit at a time. And he starts in Luke 7, chapter, um, verse 36, it says this. Next one, and there we go. 
Can I go to the next slide? There we go. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, as we've said before, the Pharisees were a powerful force in that culture, in that community. They were basically the preservers of religious and moral purity. But it was moral purity on the outside, externally, not internally. Now, the name Pharisee, and we've said this before, it means separated one. They separated themselves from everyone they deemed a sinner and unclean. So, you know, when you look up the word Pharisee in the dictionary, one of the definitions that you read is, and this is scary, a self-righteous hypocrite. And we're not told why this Pharisee, whose name is Simon, invited Jesus over, but I have to wonder if Simon drew the short end of the stick. Like the Pharisees all had a meeting and they got together and they say, hey, someone needs to um, check out this Jesus. We need to invite him over to dinner. Who's going to do it? And whether it was paper, scissors, rock, or Simon drew the short straw, whatever it was, you're it, Simon. And I say that because as we look at Simon's treatment of Jesus, it becomes obvious that he did not invite Jesus because he felt some great need for a savior. Jesus comes and the Pharisees' treatment of Jesus at this dinner is rude and discourteous by the standards of the day. You see, it was customary in those days to pour or anoint a small, of small amount of oil on somebody's head if they were an honored guest in your house as a sign of respect for them. But Simon, this Pharisee, offers no oil to Jesus. It was customary for a man to kiss another man upon their entry as a sign of friendship. I mean, it's still customary today in many cultures, especially in mine, in the Latino culture. I grew up, um, we greet you, we hug you, we kiss on you, and then we eat a lot. Yeah. But as Jesus enters the house, Simon brings no kiss of peace to Jesus. And Jews in those days wore sandals and as they walked on dirt roads, so as you walked, your feet would get really dirty and dusty. And it was customary that when you arrived at a home, you would remove your sandals as a sign of respect. And you would be provided with a basin of water for you to clean your feet. Or if you were an honored guest, a servant would come and wash your feet. But Simon the Pharisee offers no basin of water to Jesus. You see, by doing that, Simon is making a statement loud and clear to Jesus and everyone else who's in attendance. What he's saying to Jesus is that I find it worthy of my time to um, invite you to my house, to evaluate you, to investigate you. But I want to make it clear that you're no authority in my life. So Simon the Pharisee denies Jesus the respect, love, and even the common courtesies of his home. But then, in the next verse, a woman comes in who is in every way Simon's opposite. And it says in verse 37, Darren, if you could go to the next slide. And he says, says this, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now Luke describes her arrival by saying, behold, a woman of the city. He throws in that behold to let you know that something different is happening here. Something out of the ordinary is about to go down. 
And that out of the ordinary is not that she showed up as an uninvited guest, no. It's not like she broke into the house and crashed the dinner party. Twice in the text, it tells us that they were reclining at table. And that tips us off to something, that this was not a normal family meal. It was a special meal. Darren, can you go back to that first slide? You see, special banquets weren't like the Da Vinci painting in The Last Supper, where everyone is sitting behind a table like they're about to take a picture, no. At special banquets, you would lay out tables at coffee table height, and you would lean in on one arm and eat with the other. You would lay down or recline on pillows, and your feet would extend behind you, and you would circle together kind of in like in a U-shape. Banquets or symposiums were common to do when you had a guest teacher in town. It had some excitement to it. Like our rabbi is going to sit with the visiting rabbi and they're going to discuss and dialogue in an unscripted way. And this was like must-see TV. So that is what you would do. You would leave the doors and windows open to a courtyard so that as you're having dinner, people could come into your house and sit on your window ledges or they would sit on the floor on the edges around the room and watch you eat and talk. It kinda, it's kind of like being at a roundtable discussion or a breakout session at a conference where you get to see some of your favorite speakers talk to each other in an unscripted way. So that's the moment here. It's a banquet and the locals get to watch this thing go down. So the drama is when Luke says, behold, that a woman of the city came into the house. The drama is that this kind of woman stepped into that house. I mean, have you ever felt that way? Like, what's a person like you doing in a place like this? That's a total Bob Dylan lyric right there. Behold, a sinner has arrived at BBC. Let's be honest, we've all kind of felt that way at one time or another. And you think things like, if you knew what I got up to last night, or if you heard the way I talked to my parents or my spouse, or if you heard the way I yelled at my kids on the way to church, you would not let me into this place. Or if you knew who I really was, you would lock the doors. But keep listening because this message is for you and this message is for me. So this woman comes in, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now Luke doesn't tell us exactly what she did, but the idea is that she had a bad reputation. And a sinner back then had the reputation of breaking the laws of God, but it also had a sexual connotation as it related to women. So the most commentaries that I read believe that she was a prostitute, or it could have been that she was promiscuous. The point is, whatever it was, she has a past and it's no secret. Everybody knows and they judge her for it. Imagine being her, that every time she went into the marketplace or the town square, a constant reminder of her shame was to see in their eyes looks of condemnation. But at some point, and we don't know when she heard about Jesus. You know, if you were to do a harmony of the gospels, put them side by side, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and look at them chronologically, you'll see that what happens before this event here is Matthew 11, 28 to 30. If you could put the next slide up, that'd be great. Now, again, imagine being this woman and hearing these words for the very, very first time. Then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Or maybe she heard Jesus speak about the love of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God that was available to all, even someone like her. And when she heard these words, she didn't need to be convinced. She knew that how she was living her life was not okay, that she was not okay. And in the cold light of morning, when she looked at herself in the mirror, she didn't like what she saw. Incredibly, at some point, this woman believes in faith the words of Jesus. And here's something we don't find out until the end of Luke 7, that she has met Jesus before this dinner. In verse 47, Jesus says that her sins are forgiven, are forgiven. It's past tense. It's done. And look at how this woman responds. She summons up her courage and walks through the town in front of all those people and steps into the house of this Pharisee, the separated one, clutching her little bottle of perfume. And when she gets there, Luke slows it right down. He uses seven verbs in one sentence describing all the stuff that she does. She never says a word. Her actions speak louder than words. The next slide. And it says, in standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. I don't know if she had something to plan to say when she saw Jesus at Simon's house, but as she gets close enough to him, words fail her and she just starts to cry. I mean, has that ever happened to you? You get filled up with emotion when you get an opportunity to talk to someone who has meant the world to you. That happens to me all the time. (laughs) Happens to me all the time. Now this woman comes up behind Jesus. If you could cue the next slide and begins to weep, and Luke uses the word for rain. He doesn't, she doesn't just get a little, little teared up. Her tears start to rain down. She casts her head down, and she sees his dusty feet, and she leans over and let those tears just rain down on those feet. And I love how I read this, this quote. It says, eyes that were once painted up to attract men are now used to wash the feet of Jesus. And then she does something that in that public domain would have been viewed as immodest and scandalous. She unbinds and lets down her hair. Hair that Paul calls in 1 Corinthians the crown and glory of a woman. A woman wouldn't unbind her hair in public the only time she would do it would be for her husband on their wedding day. It was one of the things that they looked forward to seeing most was your hair flowing down. And it was also something that she never did for free. She embinds her glory, the most beautiful thing for a Jewish woman, and she uses it as a rag on Jesus's feet. And lips that once had kissed men in the dark now kiss those same feet. Now the word kiss used here in the Greek is kata phileo. Now, kata means with and phileo means love. It's the same word used for the father's kiss when his prodigal son came home. She's kissing his feet in love and she used perfume, perfume that was once used as a trick of her trade. 
It was part of her allure to attract men she now breaks and pours on the feet of Jesus. Now, she doesn't just anoint his feet with just a few drops. No, she breaks the flask. You see, she's not going to need it anymore. That was her old life. This is her new life. She's a picture of Romans 6. Next slide. It says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And that's exactly what this woman does. She takes her body that has been given away in so many times in so many fruitless places, and she takes all that she has and she lays it at the feet of Jesus in self-forgetful worship. And the room is filled with the fragrance of that beautiful aroma. Sweet. Can you smell it? Can you picture it? But then a smelly aroma arose. And it's the attitude of this Pharisee. And it says in the next slide, Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon reaches a verdict on Jesus. Next slide. He says, if this guy were really a prophet, which he clearly is not, he would have been able to figure out what sort of woman this is, which is dirty, and he wouldn't have let her do what she is doing, with that is touch him. And he puts that in the present tense that she continued to touch him. Simon is not only offended by the woman, he's offended by Jesus and this whole scene. Now picture you are at this dinner party. How are you feeling at this moment? And what does that reveal about your heart? What does that reveal about my heart? Because if I'm honest, it's awkward, isn't it? It's so awkward. I mean, part of me is moved by her worship, the freedom and the abandonment of it. But the other part of me is like, honey, you need to just dial that down a notch. Everybody is looking at you. But notice Jesus doesn't try to temper her passion or her worship. He knows that she knows that this is not about her. It's all about her love and gratitude towards him. Jesus is the object of her affection. And then irony steps in. And the text, Luke says, and Jesus answered him. Simon's complaining to himself. He's just thinking this. And Jesus answers him, displaying the very prophetic ability that this Pharisee said that he lacked. Jesus answered the silent question of this man's heart. And in verse 40, next slide, he says this. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon answered, say it, teacher. In other words, say what you're going to say, say on. And then Jesus tells him a simple story. Next slide. Oh no, go back, yeah, that's it. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Another translation says that they did not have with anything with which to repay. He freely forgave the debt of them both. And then Jesus says, now which one of them will love him more? 
It's a simple story. Two debtors. One owes 10 times more than the other one, but they are both unable to pay, both helpless, both in need of grace, both graciously forgiven. An act that would be totally out of character for a money lender. The reason why a money lender lends money is to get interest in return. It would be like the bank who owns your house mortgage or your student loan say, hey, your debt has been canceled. And man, wouldn't that be amazing? But that's not a normal experience, no. Jesus tells a story of radical, gracious forgiveness of debt. And then he asks a simple question, who do you think will love him more? The person who owes two months wages or the person who owes two years wages, which one? Next slide. And Simon answers, the one, I suppose. He can't even bring himself to fully agree with Jesus, I guess for whom he counseled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. And Jesus points his attention to this woman and he starts to go down the list of courtesies that Simon neglected that were met and surpassed by this sinful woman. Next slide. And it says, then turning towards the woman in front of everybody, y'all, in front of everybody, he turns to the woman, he says to Simon, do you see this woman? How could you not? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Next slide. Jesus says, yeah, I know exactly what kind of woman this is who's touching me. And the fact is you can learn a few things from her, Simon. You, the Pharisee, can learn from the sinful woman. And the message is, Simon, your heart is cold to me, because you don't think you're that bad. Simon the Pharisee is not someone who sinned less. What Simon doesn't get is that his judgmental heart of other people and of this woman is as dirty and offensive to God as what she probably did last weekend. And I love how Kenneth Bailey in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and I've borrowed so much for that and preparing for this talk, it's fantastic and breaking down this passage. And the next slide, he says this, and I thought it was so profound. He says, there is a great sin defiling this room, but it's not the sin Simon thinks. It is a sin of lips that won't kiss, knees that won't bend, eyes that will not weep, hands that will not serve, perfume that will never leave the jar. It is a sin of a heart that will not break, a life that will not change, a soul that will not love. She needs grace for a heart that is broken. He needs grace for a heart that is hard. You see, this woman who felt the weight of her sin now knows and understands the value of a savior. And Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, I just need to clarify something in case you're confused about what Jesus is not saying. 
He's not saying she's forgiven because she loved much. No. You and I could read it that way, but we would be wrong. And we would miss the parable and we would miss the whole of New Testament theology. If you remember the parable Jesus told Simon, someone has a debt graciously forgiven. Now, what as a result of that forgiveness, who would love more? This is key. See, love is a response to the forgiveness, not the prompt of it. Jesus doesn't say, man, this woman has been working hard back there, therefore she is forgiven. No, he says she understands that she has been forgiven, therefore she has responded with much love. Her devotion is not the prompt of Jesus' forgiveness. It's proof that forgiveness has been received. I love that. It's proof that forgiveness has been received. It would be young men. It'd be like when you realize that you love a girl and you're not gonna go, oh, I think I love her and continue playing video games or watch Netflix. It's not what you're gonna do. You're going to be like, love moves, love actions. It's like, what can I do for you? Can I fill up your car? Can I cook you dinner? Can I, you know, what can I do? Buy you flowers? What? Love moves, love actions. You see, this passage invites us to enlarge the capacity of our hearts, to feel deeply once again about the reality of sin, and then to rejoice passionately over the reality of God's amazing grace. And my fear is that over time, we can become over-familiar and cavalier or blasé with grace, which is unmerited favor. Or the way that I remembered it as a young Christian was the acronym for grace, and it's God's riches at Christ's expense. But if we aren't careful, our hearts can shrink like the Grinch over time. Remember that Dr. Seuss story, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas? His mean heart had shrunk so small that you needed a magnifying glass to even see it. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You see, when our hearts shrink, we can have a tendency to get judgmental, legalistic, and cold-hearted. And it can shrink as we forget the crushing despair of guilt and the breathless wonder of forgiveness. It's a scandalous grace scandalous. And when we truly embrace it, church, we worship differently. We just do. Now I'm going to show you a short clip that I think captures this perfectly. Some of you may have seen it before, but it's a clip of Michael Jr., the comedian. Now he's in the middle of one of his stand-up comedy routines when he starts interacting with someone in the audience. And look what happens. This is so good. Have a check. Check it out. For those that don't know, Michael Jr.'s break time is exactly that. In the middle of my stand-up comedy, I stop doing it, sit down, and just kick it with the people. Check it out. Just some random dude. I don't even know who he is. We just start kicking it, and look what happens. Let me talk to the brother right there. Yeah. Yeah. What's your name, bro? Daryl. I'm gonna need you to slow down with all that, bro. <laughs> For real, you're scaring the white people. You can't do that, Daryl. I'm sorry, bro. You're scaring me too, though. <laughs> wow. Well, what do you do for a living, Daryl? I work at Oak Ridge Military Academy. I'm the music director there. 
Musical director, Old Bridge Musical Crank. Okay, yeah. cool. But you got a deep voice, man. I, I would not want to get you mad. Jonathan, come here. You're like, oh, snap. Nine Jonathan show up. It's amazing, dude. So you're a musical director. Cool. Yes, sir. All right, so um, let me get a couple, let me get a couple bars of like uh, Amazing Grace. Can you do the first part of that? Let me hear. We didn't plan this. Just so y'all know, we didn't, we didn't plan this at all. I'm just randomly talking to, go ahead. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Wow. That brought could sing. You know what I'm saying? All right, all right. Uh, now, once you give me the version, is if. Uh, your uncle just got out of jail. You got shot in the back when you was a kid. I'm just saying, let me see the hood version real quick. If you know which version I'm talking about, just see if that exists. Let me see what you got. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound Ridiculous. Dude is just sitting in the audience with all of this skill, all this talent that I don't even know about. Come on now. Did you get it? Did you see the difference? The first time he sang, he knew what to do. He just sang in a controlled, precise, and unemotional way. He just kind of went through the motions. But the second time he sang, he sang. He knew why he was singing it. I was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Grace has saved a wretch like me. See, when you understand your desperation and you receive by faith his redemption, it produces and stirs affection and awe for the one who came to set us free. Next slide. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, those at the table are totally outraged and thinking, who does this guy think he is? You can't say that. You're taking God's prerogative. Who are you to pronounce over this woman that all the things that she's done in the dark have been forgiven? Who are you to do that? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus doesn't listen to them. He says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How is Jesus so sure she's forgiven? How can we be so sure our debt has been paid? How can we be sure 
that her debt has been paid because the next slide, Jesus is the payment. <laughs> you see, whenever a sin is committed, a debt incurs and that debt has to be paid by somebody. Jesus came to be the payment. And when we receive that forgiveness, that payment for our sins, shame and guilt are lifted. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to live the perfect life we could not, to die the death we deserved, to take upon himself our sin and shame forever. And we get to rise clean and pure and new because he did. And he draws all those to himself who will admit their need. Now, here's the kicker. <laughs> you don't have to get cleaned up to receive this forgiveness. You come to Jesus as you are. You are welcome at the table. And as you trust him in faith, as your sin bearer, you will experience new life. Church, we need hearts that have been set free by grace. Hearts that have experienced change like we see in this woman. Hearts that are free to love Jesus and free to love people because we're all broken. Let's ask the Lord to blow the dust off grace for us and our over-familiarity and cavalier attitude with grace that we would see afresh the friend of sinners in Jesus and that our hearts would be moved and changed. My prayer for you in the days and weeks and months to come is that you would take the time to sit long at the feet of Jesus in self-forgetful worship and consider deeply who he is and what he's done for debtors like you and me. Please stand to your feet as we prepare our hearts to worship. God asked me this question, so I'm going to ask you. <laughs> when was the last time you sat at the feet of Jesus in true self-forgetful worship? And if it's been a while, perhaps the question we need to ask ourselves is, has my heart become cold? Has it become small? Here we go. Has it become small? Have I become unmoved by the wonders of grace? Have I grown cold? Have I become judgmental, legalistic like Simon? Because we all have Pharisee tendencies. As we worship, can I encourage you to open your hearts tonight and to confess that? talk to your father your heavenly father who knows how many hairs you have on your head and knows your every thought loves you loves you ask him to take your heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh that beats for him amen amen god we love you you are so beautiful help us to really feel the weight of how sin the deep goes but like I said before the breathless wonder and the beauty of your forgiveness and redemption amazing grace I once was lost but now I'm found I was blind but now I see grace has saved a wretch like me thank you Lord thank you Father hallelujah amen thank you team